box. Box. About 8,000 books. Bringing books and people together. Box. My first question to you is this. You can read for fun. And happy reading. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to this special edition of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. As you may have guessed from our intro music, we're doing something a little bit different than usual. Normally, as you know, we're interviewing cocktail experts, distillers, or bartenders trying to access the knowledge that will help you take your home bartending game to the next level. But you know what? There's other ways to educate yourself about all things boozy and delicious. For me, books have always been precious. I've never been really on board with the whole e-reader fad, and I'm kind of secretly glad that physical books seem to be making a bit of a resurgence over the past couple years. When I was a kid, actually, my mom had serious concerns about me being able to navigate when I was 16 and I got my driver's license because as soon as we'd get in the car to go anywhere, I'd be deep in a book by the time we hit the end of the driveway. These days, being the CEO of a startup, I don't have a ton of time to read, usually on the road pitching clients or up early on the weekend at our production facility to make the cocktail mixers that you all know and love. So when I do get a chance to read, I try to make it count, try to stay current on cocktail-related topics, seek out the best new books out there. Moving forward, we're going to start publishing short cocktail book reviews on the Modern Bar Cart podcast so that you can get a preview of the books that will really supplement and elevate your experience as a home bartender. They're not always going to be regular, not going to come at intervals that you can expect, Uh, And we'll still be doing all the great interviews and deep dives that we usually do, but these occasional in-between episodes are just one more way that we're trying to be of service to you and create a world where cocktails are the new normal. But before we get into our book review this time around, we've got a couple other items on the agenda. First, I've got an announcement that we've kind of been teasing here and there for a little while, throwing out little hints but I am absolutely stoked to finally announce that Modern Bar Cart will be releasing a new product in the coming months called the Essential Tasting Journal for Spirits and Cocktails. After years of speaking with other cocktail enthusiasts out there, we realized that a lot of people like to take notes on their cocktail experiments and adventures, whether it's at home or out at the bar. And I include myself in that group. But there's just not a whole ton of resources out there that really make cocktail note-taking easy. So most people just grab a moleskin or a composition notebook and take their cocktail notes freehand. They develop their own kind of personal style and shorthand. There's a couple big disadvantages to this, actually. The first of which is that it allows beginners to fall into either bad or inconsistent tasting habits, which can really slow down the learning process when you're trying to train your palate. Consistency is huge when you're doing this, and if you don't have some sort of structured approach to your cocktail and spirits tasting notes, they're just not going to be as useful as they might be otherwise. The other big problem with the blank page approach, and this one primarily pertains to folks with more tasting experience, is that you tend to get lazy with your notes. 
right? You've got your cocktail sitting right there next to you. And as you labor to scribble down the correct notes on the page, it's slowly getting warm. And in reality, what are you going to decide to do in the moment? Enjoy your cocktail or spend another minute or two searching for the right words to describe mouthfeel or an alcohol burn and other kind of secondary sensations. Nine times out of 10, you're just going to skip over those things, start enjoying your drink, and then forget to return to your notes and finish recording the extra stuff that really fleshes out a well-composed set of tasting notes. We're teaming up with our phenomenal designer, Spencer Joint, to solve all the problems I just described and more. In next week's episode, we'll give you a sneak peek at some of the innovative features of the Essential Tasting Journal for Spirits and Cocktails, and we'll let you know where you can go to check out some proofs and wireframes to get a sense of what it's going to look like. Needless to say, we're pretty amped about this, and if you know anything about us, you can bet that there's going to be some sweet opportunities and discounts solely for podcast listeners as we launch this product, so stay tuned. The other thing I want to do before we get to our book review is catch up with Modern Bar Cart co-founder Ethan Hall. We sat down with him in episode 54 to talk about the ins and outs of moving your home bar long distance, and he's been kind of teasing me with some intriguing photos of some of his newest acquisitions as he rebuilds his bar on the West Coast. So I was able to jump on a quick Skype call with him recently and learn all about his favorite new finds. Let's check it out. Hey, man. Yo. I'm kind of curious. I'm glad that I'm glad that we were able to touch base on Skype. I'm kind of curious about um, what your home bar is looking like now that you're in San Francisco. How's the move been? Um, move was, like all moves, kind of a disaster. Uh, but none of my bottles of liquor that I couldn't gift away or consume in Nashville. They all, they all made it out here. Nothing broke. Um, that's a, that's a blessing on, you know, on many fronts. Uh, cause there are a few, I think we talked about it last time. There's a few precious bottles that I would consider worthy of moving from place to place that I've been chipping away at over the years. All right. Let's talk about the, uh, the Fabergé eggs that you, uh, kind of transported in their airtight little, uh, containers. What, what did you do? What bottles were those that, that like kind of made the cut as the ones you were going to kind of smuggle closest to your body? Um, so one of these, it's just a weird novel one. Um, and you know, the person who gifted it to me is very, is a very, is very dear to me and very close, but it's a, it's this, so I guess it would technically be German um, style is a somewhere between a brandy and a schnapps made from prickly pears uh, that came from a winery distillery in Namibia um, brought back as a gift um, from one of our one of our good friends, you know who. Um, and I, um, you know, there's not a lot of applications for that thing. So, you know, occasionally I'll get a little, uh, I'll, I'll get a little adventurous and um, apply it to a drink. It's got a, got a weird, uh, got, got, got some weird but lovely qualities to it. And I'm looking back over here. You know, the other stuff that I'll just point out, and then we can keep going, is um, I had a, homemade, a few homemade product, projects. So my slow gins, my Amara, my Amari, um, and then everything that I was barrel aging uh, came with me. So there's some gins uh there's some gins a rum and i believe at this point it is 
a Canadian majority rye whiskey um, that I've got that I've got going right now. Um, on top of that, a few of the things where you know you use it infrequently enough uh, that you don't you know that's above fifty percent of the bottle, but you don't want to give it away. Um, there's this bottle of Drambuie you got me like two years ago. I only drink maybe a rusty nail every like. T- every like six months so um but i'm not getting rid of that one it's a gift and two it's you know am i really gonna go to the liquor store and drop 40 bucks on a bottle of trambuie no i've cut it right right especially right. if the movers are gonna cover that so yeah i feel you i feel you what are you drinking now just uh just for the listeners um so i never got the ratios down and you and i have um noodle on this one for a couple of years now um there's this drink that uh, they made me at a, you know, what I would say one of the better, it's a cocktail experience bar. Every good, every worthwhile city has one. Uh, the Patterson House in Nashville, Tennessee, which I, again, I've probably plugged like multiple times on your podcast, um, made this drink for me called the Diego Vega. Um, it consists of, at least according to their list of ingredients, and like any high end restaurant or or um, other place, they just list ingredients and expect you to, you know, uh, consider that good enough. Um, it is a mez, you know, its main base spirit is mezcal with a little bit of reposado tequila um, added in there. In a um, let's see, it's uh, yeah, so it's a mezcal tequila base with amar with two amari, Nardini and Campari, and then. You know, depending on which liquor store you go to and who you talk to, um, this can fall in a lot of different uh, categories. But I consider Putamez to basically be a, you know, a high octane, high end sweet vermouth. Um, I think that's pretty. Would you agree? That's a pretty fair way to describe it. I'd, I'd agree with the high octane. Uh, it depends on your price point if you want to call it high end. I, I don't know enough about the production methods. Um, what I will say is that usually. I do treat it like the counterpart to the sort of high-end premium vermouths in that it like the it is the darkest kind of most I guess brooding of the of the high-end vermouths that I tend to use. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like to think of it as it's tilting on the edge of there are a few wine-based uh, aperitifs and um, almost Amari, like Cardamaro and Banal, that, uh, frankly, I'll use in place of vermouth if I want to mess around with some things and try to change up a cocktail. But, you know, it's um, but it's that level of we're getting a little bit more complex, a little bit darker, a little bit more bitter, but it's a lower alcohol content it's still a fortified wine in, at the end of the day so you're right there are definitely vermouths that are um way above what i'm gonna pay in my world uh drop in 25 30 bucks on punta mez or um carpano uh god forbid is pretty high end for vermouth but i know there i know there are episodes already done on that yeah no uh, carpano and punta mez sort of are um in that high-end spectrum for me and I, I think both of them serve their purposes for me the way that i i tend to distinguish between the two is if i'm doing my boozy dark winter cocktails i like the punta Mez, and if i'm doing sort of my sophisticated fall spring cocktails i i really like the uh, carpano antica and in the summer usually the sweet vermouth doesn't come to bear as much 
Um, but that's kind of the way I look at it. But so, um, all right. So, so we've got some of these bottles that you, um, lovingly transported with you. And so you text me a couple things. So let me, let me just tell listeners what, uh, some of these, these images looked like. I just want to make sure I got them both here. But so I, I've got this image and you, <laughs> I was I was blown away when you texted it to me because it's like kind of a, a, a slightly a carbon copy of, of of many of the bottles that I have in my own home bar, um, which makes sense because we live together. We kind of cut our teeth on cocktails together, so it would make sense that some of our cocktail sensibilities overlap. But I see this photo with uh, Lafroy Ten Year, a Smith and Cross rum, a bottle of green chartreuse, a bottle of sfumato. Amaro Sfumato, and then a bottle of Grand Marnier. So this might seem weird to some of the listeners that were like dissecting your purchases, but the reason why I want to do this is because these purchases seem so interesting to me and so close to what I do that I'd like to dig into your reasoning so that we can figure out if we share a common reasoning for why you decided to make these purchases right when you set down roots. Um, to figure out whether like we're doing it for the same reasons or different reasons, because I feel like this would be informative for our listeners. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm going to just say for the sake of the listeners here, I excluded my commodity purchases because um, those are things that I can't text my friends back on the East Coast and, and uh, kind of taunt them with my wonderful finds. No one's going to, you know, in addition well, I was at Costco. Of course, I picked up a um, a big old handle of Bombay Sapphire, a big old handle of Johnny Walker, and um, some Kirkland nine year uh, 103 proof bourbon, and a few other things like that. Um, you you gotta. So I'm gonna divert us a little bit and then explain those. When you move, you have to, at least in my mind, you got to build out the staples on your bar and quick. And a lot of it is determined by the liquor laws and what you can get where you are. So any state where you can buy liquor at a Costco, I mean, you're a fool not to. Um, now, when we get back to those higher end things, um, those all came from a a trip out to a, um, a I'll just call them. I don't want to do any brand, uh, any, any brand endorsements on stores other than Costco because I love them. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't, it, you know, our endorsement you know doesn't matter anything to them anyway. So what does yeah. it matter? Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to attach you to anyone except Costco. Costco, if you're listening and you'd like to get into the podcast advertising business, I think we've got a guy for you. Um, now that being said, uh, there, yeah. So I went to one of the, one of the bigger, liquor giants that has a very good selection because i there were some things i missed things that what they were at when i left nashville um you know for example with my green chartreuse i had enough that i knew if i could come up with an excuse to make four last words in the last you know week or two that i was in town i was just gonna go and annihilate that same with a few of the other um big other other what i'll call big liqueur purchases because that's you know that's a 50 dollar plus bottle um so the chartreuse i consider that you know if you want to entertain a guest and they aren't into the big boozy next necessarily they like the citrusy cocktails and you want to give them something a little bit different you know it used to always be for me that i would go uh the corpse reviver route or maybe the sidecar route great 
introductory drinks for someone who's, you know, who says, oh, I like margaritas or I like daiquiris. Um, speaking of daiquiris, Smith and Cross, take take a daiquiri, let it punch you in the face a little bit, you know, go, take you out in the alley and rough you up. Uh, that's that's the kind of way I would think of uh, making a daiquiri with the uh, Navy strength Smith and Cross. It's pretty delightful. Um, let's let's talk a second about Smith and Cross. Um, can you characterize this rum for folks and and uh, tell them where it's made? Yeah, so Smith and Cross is it's I believe actually from a British distiller, but it's made in the Jamaican rum style. Um, I know from your from the rum episode, which I loved, um, these are people who make heavy use of the uh, concept of dunder pits and sort of you know now that I'm in San Francisco, similar idea to having a sourdough culture that you uh build into your uh into your bakery it's literally in the air and in the walls around you populate with this organism populating um your mash and the smith and cross rum is funky it's got a little bit of a i mean it's kind of like getting a weird blue cheese um there's some notes of it that are like that it's got some pineappleiness it's it's a high ester rum like I, I would say if you don't have the money, if you don't want to shell out or if you're getting into that kind of stuff, um, Ray and Nephew's Overproof is maybe buck for buck a little bit of a better deal. Um, but I think that, you know, it's a totally different game when you get into these super funky complex rums. It's a, certainly a funky rum. Um, it's it's one of these rums that being a non-Caribbean rum, it, it, it has a, a bit of a question mark to it, right? You see rum, you assume that it's made in the Caribbean, but uh, I think I think this is one of the best, uh, highest quality rums out there, and because of the fact that it is literally 50% ABV, what we would you know in the bourbon world call you know bonded. Um, um I'm going to correct you there. It is 57% ABV. I'm holding the bottle. It's 57. Yeah. It is 57. It is a rich caramel color. Oh, beautiful. Um, I might have checked my. Uh, I'll check my bottle. I didn't realize it was 57. So this is this is certainly a. So th- so th- the beauty of the uh, the um, Smith and Cross is obviously that you can slap that in a cocktail as the main base spirit and have it just be like just bump bump bump, just kind of like strutting its stuff. Or as uh, you know you kind of like to do you know throw it in there as like a quarter ounce or a third ounce float on top of something else and have it kind of lend itself to the rest of the cocktail experience of something that it might otherwise not be a part of yeah and the other thing that i can um i can lend you with the smith with just the idea of the smith and cross rum that i'm so enamored with is i just want to throw this out here i'll get the name and the link for uh, your show notes but a drink that i um was just recently able to make with some of my fun purchases um that i that i found is equal parts you're doing a three-quarter ounce pour of each smith and cross or another high proof jamaican rum um, a good rye whiskey. I had some Sazerac rye on hand, so pretty decent one. Um, you know, I would say, again, you're not going a rye forward thing, so Bullet is good, Dickel's fine, those kind of things. Sure. Um, anyway, three-quarter ounce, Smith & Cross, a decent rye, and then another three-quarter ounce pour of Campari and three-quarter ounces of Amaro Nardini, which is – it's a really, really hard cocktail to 
drink if you're not into the, all those kind of things. But um, damn if it didn't bowl me over as a great drink. It's um, you, you, you serve it up. You stirred it. You stir it, you serve it up, and um, for people who aren't familiar, you know, the way I would think of Nardini is um, it's like a more approachable Fernet. Fernet um, it's got a little bit of that spearminty note at the end, but uh, it's, it's 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 a whole different beast. I, I love the stuff. Orange notes in there? Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, it's not quite as um, it's not quite as I hate the word earthy, but not not as earthy as Chinar, but um, it's got a lot of the same same fun characteristics. Um, so you did, so that, so like we, we kind of like made your way like through the, the first purchase that, that you texted me and, and we're talking about the, the Amari now and <laughs> you texted me Saturday, a couple days ago, you got this lineup. I'm just going to read the lineup that you, that you posted and, um, it irritates me how jealous I was of just seeing these lineups because, you know, I've got my home bar here. I'm established. I don't need to go out and make such, you know, uh, kind of like blockbuster purchases. But you've got the, the Lille Blanc. You've got the Luxardo Fernet. You have, of course, your Nardini that you've been talking about. You've got Amaro Averna, which I'd like you to talk about. Maybe we can start there. Uh, and then you've got Koki Americano and Chinar. So uh, walk us through this kind of like second phase. And I'm assuming, unless you have any more glaring omissions in your bar, <laughs> I can't imagine that you do. I'm assuming that this kind of rounded out the like, okay, I've got all, all of my accessories now in my bar, and now I'm comfortable making the cocktails I want to make. Um, there's one glaring omission and I'm still trying to find it. Anyone, any listeners in the San Francisco area who want to hit me up on a place where I can find Sue's, I've been really pissed off about not being able to find Sue's in, in the two, you know, I'll call them out total wine and more Bevmo. You are two very large chain liquor stores. I could find Chinar and Chinar 70 in the same purchase. Couldn't find a bottle of Sue's to save my life. No one knew what I was talking about. Get on your shit. Um, Amen. and and one more hit on the San Francisco area while I'm making fun of the, my new home. Um, I really like that the dive bar culture around here, the service industry culture, really embraces Fernet. Um, but people here, probably because we're separated by you know two, three thousand miles from the East Coast, um, think that they invented the doing a shot of Fernet. Um, being a like badass thing that you do at the bar. Uh, no, it's everywhere. And by the way, that shit comes from Italy. Um, so no California, no San Francisco. You did not invent doing shots of Fernet. Um, but I really do appreciate that you like doing it. Good. Cause we have a lot of California listeners. So don't, don't alienate them, please. Oh, I mean, if you want to also talk about how the New York Sour uh, name was created, I think we both read Imbibe, and that was just bartenders making fun of New Yorkers for acting like they invent everything. All right, well, let's uh, let's talk about these. Sorry, let's uh, go back to the purchases. Yeah, you're you're ranting now, dear. You're ranting. Let's um <laughs> let's let's talk about your your Amaro purchase specifically Averna, because it, what I like about you is that you. Uh, and I kind of cut our teeth on making bitters, and so we really like bitter things. So, so we we have absolutely no inhibitions about tasting these kind of bizarre amari. So, talk to me about Averna now, like because that's we 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 both tasted this one, we both enjoy it. Talk to me about Averna and its possible uses. Yeah, so um, I actually came back from that night. I had come back. I had a 
single cocktail. Um, don't drink and drive. Um, I had a single cocktail and drove home and stopped at the store on my way back. Um, the single cocktail I had was a black Manhattan that substituted in uh, Amaro Averna for at least half of, if not all, the sweet vermouth. Can't quite remember. It was a perfectly serviceable um, Manhattan variant, but um, Averna's got an interesting. I'm trying to think of a good way to put it. Um, might just like pull. I'm. Go ahead. Yeah, we'll pause. Ethan is currently making himself a sampler of said beverage, telling them all your beautiful secrets, my friend, all your beautiful secrets. Good. Um, so uh, before we get back to it, I just wanted to point out, um, if you haven't finished your Sfumato, it gets a little bit of sediment, so you should probably actually shake it up before using it. Mm, interesting. I have probably about a third of a bottle left. So, oh, um, agitate the shit out of it. It's going to be intense. Let's talk about that after this. Let's do Averna, then Sfumato, and then we can kind of wrap it up. But I, I, I like the kind of weird things you got, so I want people to learn from that and kind of like see how you're using them and, and get some at least some tasting notes out of it, right? Yep. All right, I'm ready. I just poured myself a little tasting glass of Averna. All right. So Averna on the scale of Amari, it's uh, pretty syrupy um, when you compare it to, you know, I think I made, I won't even say I made the mistake, but one of the first um, Amari I put on my bar when I really started getting into stuff was Chinar. And so I pretty much gauge bitterness and intensity with that as my uh, benchmark, which is maybe not a good good starting point. That stuff's, um, that stuff's high octane. Um, this one is dark. It's got a little bit of, you know, you get it on the nose and you can actually smell ginger root, um, which is a really interesting quality to it. Cause it's not like your domain Canton. Is that it? And the King's ginger, the more ginger forward liqueurs. Um, this really has, so here's how I'll scale it. Um, Amaro Averna is a little bit more intense in the depth of the flavor it goes a little darker than a maletti which i want to return to with another cocktail recipe for your uh for your listeners because that was another bottle i brought with me maletti has more of a cola like a cola and chocolate notes this one goes a little bit below that doesn't quite delve into it it's almost got some like molassesy date like characteristics to it um and yeah again Pretty syrupy. Sure, I might even wager uh, eucalyptus into there um, as as sort of like a it's 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 not a it's it's slightly medicinal, uh, but it's it's not as medicinal as something like a fernet or something like a chinar. Yeah, and it's twenty nine percent, so it it has a kick to it. Um, I can see where this would be a good after dinner sipper. Um, I recommend it in, you know, one of the things that I usually think the way I think about Amari is take your cocktails that use sweet vermouth, at least with your dark Amari and try subbing out 50 or a hundred percent of that sweet vermouth with, um, said Amaro. If you really want to see, you just, it, I mean, it's called a black Manhattan. You do those kind of things and you start to get an idea for where they might, where they might take you. 
Um, I know there are more sophisticated ways to use this stuff, and I know that there are a lot of Italians who would just tell me to drink it after I've eaten too much pizza. Um, I endorse all of those, but this is what comes to mind. So talk about Sfumato real quick, because this is the one last kind of bottle that you picked up. I first encountered it in person when you gave it as a gift to me, and then I saw that you also picked it up when you, um, you know, went and refilled your own bar. So, oh, hey, Bo, how you doing? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This is just us greeting our, um, you know, our our niece and nephew dogs uh, here on the the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. But so the Sfumato, the Amaro Sfumato, um, what initially drew you to it? Right. And then why did you choose to re-up so quickly when relocating to a new bar? So in some ways, you know, absence made the heart grow fonder. Uh, When I was I I spent, you know, this was just a very short, not even three months in Pittsburgh and um, went to one of their uh, one of their better cocktail establishments called Acacia. Um, I've mentioned it before. I loved I loved the place and I had come in at a slow time ordered it looked at the menu and I just asked the guy hey what I know everything in this in this cocktail except the I couldn't even pronounce the stuff as a sfumato so you know guy was nice enough to um wasn't busy poured me a little bit of it so I could just taste on my own um my first thought was scotch it's a smoky i mean it's italian for smoke um it's got a really smoky quality it turns out i was initially um incorrectly informed that it was a smoked rhubarb liqueur what turns out is it's a chinese rhubarb which when you um when you cut and macerate it develops these really smoky notes on top of it so it's a little bit different from other rhubarbero type uh, liqueurs it's, so it's a rhubarb liqueur, got a really dark, smoky quality with some nice bitterness and a healthy amount of sediment that collects in the bottle. Um, when I got back to Nashville after interning, so Pennsylvania, so this is just a side note on moving, is a lot of uh, bar stocking every time I move is based on what the liquor laws are in the local jurisdiction. So here you can pretty much buy liquor anywhere um which is nice pennsylvania is the exact opposite there's one store for it, it's owned by the government not open now they're open on sundays but you're pretty much stuck with whatever their selection is um so my chances of getting it there were completely non-existent i got back to nashville and hit up my you know you got your you always have your high-end liquor store the one where they've got the weird thing you can never find anywhere else they will special order stuff for you you know in dc it's your schneiders of capitol hill um Shout yeah, out, in, shout out. And in Nashville, since I also love them, Cork Dorks, uh, Midtown Cork Dorks was my go-to because it's right near Vanderbilt. Um, and they did everything from Natty Light kegs to, well, eventually tracking down and buying me a case of Amaro Sfumato that I chopped up and gifted out and drank myself. Um, but it took them a good three months to track the stuff down with their distributor. They're angels and you are a monster. Yes. And then once uh, once our guy tracked that stuff down, uh, good on him. Uh, I started seeing it in other places when I moved out here. I, you know, this was part of not going to quote the place, but uh, they had a buy five, get the sixth free effectively on their aperitif shelf. And Sfumato was on there. I knew I liked it. 
um, I knew I would use it. And here we are. Amazing. Well, and of course, like just looking over this, I mean, Chinar, Lele, Koki Americano, um, those are all hyper utilitarian bottles to, to get. And, and I, I don't want to get into too many more here, but uh, it was just really nice to kind of hear about kind of like, you know, we did this whole episode where you talked about like the preparation for moving and the actual moving process of like condensing a home bar and then like almost like rebuilding it sort of from the ashes. And it's been kind of cool to, uh, to see via text, like how you've been actually doing that. So, um, do you have any other like parting thoughts about the process of uh, rebuilding, uh, your home bar in a new location? Yeah. I, um, I think all of us booze hounds, we have our, you know, this is sort of what the industry and by industry, I do not mean our lovely bartenders and servers. I mean the uh, alcohol manufacturing industry, um, which we are adjacent to and participants in. Um, the industry really does thrive on brand loyalty. I think all of us booze hounds have our brands. Um, some of it is inherited through um, family. Maybe your grandfather drank Dewar's, so now you have a bottle of Dewar's, um, those kind of things. So I would say that the good that the appropriate ratio there that I try to fit is about an 80 20. Um, you can maybe move it into 60 40 depending on where you live and, and what you can get. But the 80 20 I like to go on is know what you love and don't be afraid to try to get those when it comes to the big national brands or the craft products you can get. Um, keep a little bit of room for what's local. But I'm an I'm an asshole and I'm a snob. I will taste things. And if the local version isn't as good as what I can get from somewhere else, um, I'm not going to I'm not going to spend my money on it. Um, however, when I come out here again, I'm going to call out someone because they've been um, very they're very good social media people. And because they're right across the bay and I'm paying them a visit uh, as soon as I can get over there is uh, St. George's um, distilling makes my favorite gin in the entire world. Um, I am happy to go local with that they make a better gin than most gins. Sure. So it seems like the 80, 20 you do is that there's like the 80% in the middle and then the 10% on either side, there's the 10% local that you, uh, assess and, uh, decline. And then there's on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, the, the 10% local that you really find and, uh, you know, kind of build that into your personal like cocktail DNA. Yeah, and I would aspire to make it more of a get all 20% into that category. You know, I think I was a little spoiled before living in Tennessee. Like, I could usually find a pretty damn good whiskey um, to supplant. And i notoriously um, weird about my bourbon preferences. So um, there are certain brands that I know are objectively great that I don't like. Um, and so when I can get when I can get weird and find some good bourbons, I will totally, um, I will totally shill for them, um, without getting a single dime in return. Um, yeah. So I think like what you want to do is look at what your local breweries, your distilleries, your wineries are obviously, um, that doesn't hold true for wine. Now that I'm adjacent to Napa County. Um, I think my wine is going to be more of a, uh, hundred percent local. Um, but you know, when you think about distilleries, uh, especially with the industry really changing and in a lot of places outside of a few of the you know, traditional hotbeds, um, 
it's good to get out there and try things and see if someone can change your preferences. Um, I, you know, I would love a chance to get moved to Louisville, Kentucky or Denver, Colorado, where there are so many distilleries that I could very easily just say I'm going a hundred percent local. Um, but old habits die hard. And, uh, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not changing that much. Sure. Well, and I, and I do think that we're actually on the way to making that 20% more of a contiguous 20% where it's like, yeah, no, like that 20% local is going to be like pretty much universally high quality stuff. So I think if there's, if there's one great message in, uh, in our conversation, it's, it's that. And, uh, I appreciate you just taking the time to, to share your, your home bar rebuilding process with our listeners, man. Yeah. Um, I'll send some, I'll send some pics and a few recipes would like to plug the modern bar cart, um, the modern bar cart, uh, heritage collection, because I've found some really interesting things to do now that I've finished building out my bar, um, specifically with the liquid gold and a, um, and kind of a sour recipe I've been playing around with. Uh-huh. Well, uh, maybe if you get your shit together and uh, take a couple of pictures, we'll put that on the old social medias and uh, share it with all of our all of our friends. Yeah, but I forget to do that. I just drink it. <laughs> it's super fair. Ethan Hall, thank you for uh, hanging out with us again here on the podcast. Always a pleasure, man. That was Modern Bar Cart co-founder Ethan Hall telling us all about his favorite new finds as he's been rebuilding his home bar on the West Coast. Just to follow up on that cocktail he was mentioning with the double dose of Amaro, he sent me a link to the recipe and it's called the Klaus Kinski, named after the famous 20th century actor who played Nosferatu the Vampire. Creepy looking guy, kinda. The recipe for the Klaus Kinski is three quarters of an ounce of rye, three quarters of an ounce of Jamaican style rum, three quarters of an ounce of Amaro Nardini, and three quarters of an ounce of Campari. So we've got a four ingredient perfect ratio cocktail, uh, no citrus, so it would be stirred rather than shaken. Now, this is a puzzling cocktail to me, looking at the ratios. It's kind of taking a stand somewhere between a rum-driven Boulevardier and a Bucare, but it's way boozier and more bitter than both of those because it swaps out the whole sweet vermouth ingredient for a double dose of Amaro. What I'd suggest if you're making the Klaus Kinski is a couple things. First, stir this for quite a bit longer than you might stir other cocktails that added dilution is gonna be really helpful. Second, instead of serving it up, put it over a large rock for a little bit of continued dilution and some extra chill factor. And then finally, throw a lemon or a grapefruit twist in there as a garnish. Make sure you express it over the top of the drink, maybe rub it around the rim of the glass. It's definitely going to lift that flavor profile, which is one of the heaviest I've ever come across. It's no wonder Ethan has been fiddling with this drink because it definitely has a lot to offer, but its bombastic components make it a technical challenge to master. And now that we've kind of snuck our featured cocktail right in the middle of the episode here, it's finally time to dive into our book review. The book we're featuring this episode is called By the Smoke and the Smell, written by award-winning San Francisco bar owner Thad Vogler. And the rambling subtitle is My Search for the Rare and Sublime 
on the Spirit's Trail. Like Ethan Hall, coincidentally, Thad Vogler is a denizen of the fine city of San Francisco, and that's where he set down his roots by creating some of the most renowned beverage programs in the country. His bars are called Bar Agricole, True Normand, and Obispo. Not quite sure if that last one's open just yet, but it will reportedly be a Cuban-inspired rum bar in the Mission District of San Fran. This book is a globe-trotting catalog of Thad Vogler's adventures in various traditional distilling cultures. Each chapter begins with his arrival in a new country with a revolving and occasionally recurring series of companions who you kind of get to know over the course of the book, which is cool. France, Scotland, Cuba, Oaxaca, Mexico, Kentucky. These are the history-steeped, culturally charged, and radically different settings for the author's quest to find the most authentically produced and delicious spirits to serve at his bars in the United States. As Vogler travels, he uses his interactions with the people and spirits he encounters to examine some of the larger questions in the service and spirits industries at this particular moment in history. At first, this kind of focus might seem a bit narrow. After all, most of us aren't bartenders or distillers. But on the other hand, most of us do occasionally travel, or at least aspire to travel to interesting places, and most of us do go out of our way to taste delicious food and drink. So if there's a universal access point to this book, I think that's it. And what really makes it an enjoyable read is that Vogler's storytelling style has just the right balance of landscape description, character building, and personal reflection to keep you turning page after page. If you're a booze hound, you'll be completely enthralled by the flavors and characters in this book. But even if you're not, I think you'll really enjoy examining the various cultural core samples that the author extracts on his quest to better understand various spirits and distilling traditions across the globe. Vogler does have a couple obsessions that pop up a number of times in different chapters. One is his fascination with the microbiome and the impact it has on distilled spirits. He's always asking about yeasts and applauding people who let the wild microbiome of their region penetrate their juice rather than opting for a completely sterile operation. The other things you'll see him put under the microscope are the sacrifices that small independent distillers make on a daily basis to safeguard the quality of their product, even though they are largely unrewarded for those sacrifices, at least financially speaking. So, if you'd like to be better read on either of those subjects, I'd say that By the Smoke and the Smell is about the best casual introduction you can find. There is a dual anxiety floating around in the background of this book, and it comes from the fact that the author is a bar owner, and the bar business is risky on a good day. He's also existentially plagued by the disappearance of many of the things he loves in his small batch artisanal spirits. But to give Vogler some credit, he rarely lets this anxiety take over entirely. It's always rescued by some pithy remark like, Bourbon is basically sweet oak juice, or an ironic description of what his companions are doing or saying in real life while he's in a corner somewhere waxing philosophical. One thing I'll try to do as I wrap up these book reviews is give you a little sample of a passage I find representative of the book's tone and content. So here's a little section from the Armagnac chapter of the book that has a good little mix of flavor talk, character building, and landscape. Everything you want to see 
in a booze-driven travelogue. Martine is an exemplary distiller, and her brandies are always among our favorites. Yet, we do not buy them to mix in drinks. Martine would never sell us something at a discount or while it was young, which is sad for us. We are looking for newer brandies that will engender compelling cocktails, not so much these contemplative, consequential bottlings by this master. She knows the value of her inventory. So we buy bottles of vintage Armagnac from her for gifts for our favorite employees and have her sign them for us. On one of the bottles, she writes, Vive l'Armagnac! I kept that bottle, a 30-year-old cépage noble, for myself, and I love to study the expressions on my guests' faces when I pour them a splash after dinner or before bed. At 30 years, this brandy is just crossing into the third stage of rancio, a Spanish term meaning rancid, which describes the evolution of flavor in wines and brandies that spend a long time in cask. By the third stage, this brandy has spent a great deal of time in a barrel, in the old cellar, with its own unique cultures of fungus, and it shows characteristics of nutmeg, tobacco, eucalyptus, and cedar. All of these qualities shine in conjunction with a bright spine of fruit and acidity that mark the Venice quality of the best Armagnacs. Sometimes as we travel from spot to spot, I imagine an aerial view of our white van moving along the country road, or even the expanding line that links one location to the next on the map as in old films when the protagonist is traveling. The van has its own gravity, holding us together until we stop and the sliding door opens, allowing in the cool air which pulls us out. We're like the characters in Scooby-Doo, I think, moving from adventure to adventure in a van of their own. In our van, a stoner and a talking dog don't eat huge sandwiches in one gulp. Rather, we argue about music or ride in silence, thinking of our obligations at home. As we move across the southwest of France, the landscape vacillates between small forests and expansive vistas. We mount and descend rolling hills surrounded by beautiful agricultural land. Sunflowers grow all over here, but not at the height of winter. Even though the land is frozen, it appears swollen and fertile. That's it for this book review edition of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I hope that you pick up a copy of Thad Vogler's book, By the Smoke and the Smell, if my thoughts have in any way piqued your interest. And please do hit us up on Facebook or Instagram at Modern Bar Cart to let us know what books you'd like us to review next. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. 
can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, some interesting new liquor acquisitions by Modern Bar Cart co-founder Ethan Hall, an intriguing book by Thad Vogler, and a little bit of book review magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.